The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast with your host, metaphysician, Reiki master, and hypnotherapist, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week, we will discover teachings, tips, and tools to radiate your best life ever with practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Hello and welcome back to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. Today we radiate miracles with Kristen Van Uden, who is going to be discussing the book, The A Cardiologist Examines Jesus, the Stunning Science Behind Eucharistic Miracles. Now, Kristen is the U.S. spokesperson for this book, um, and we were just chatting a moment ago about Miracles of all types. Well, anyway, Kristen, I'm so excited to have you here. Hi, Christy. Thank you for having me. Happy New Year. I'm happy to join your audience. Thank you. Happy New Year to you, too. Um, So a cardiologist examines these Eucharistic miracles. Can you tell us just first what a Eucharistic miracle is? Sure. So in the Catholic Church, um, one of the basically foundational beliefs of the church is the belief in the Eucharist. So we believe that when the priest pronounces the words of consecration over the bread and the wine that you'll see at mass, that they actually substantially change through a process called transubstantiation from bread and wine to the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he is disguised. He is hidden under the guise of a little host. And it's that humility that he displayed all throughout his life here on earth. Um, For example, being born in a a lowly manger and being contained in the smallest possible piece of bread that he gives himself to us. Um, Catholics are, we are very based on sacramentality. So that means that our physical bodies and our souls matter. So that is why Christ chooses to come to us physically. So we receive him uh, on the tongue and you, you know, swallow the Eucharist and, and eat, eat our Lord, which is a very radical concept that when Jesus even introduced this in the Bible, many disciples actually left him after he explained this doctrine. Um, that's actually, there's a tradition that that is one of the reasons that Judas Iscariot started to doubt our Lord is because he couldn't accept just, just this radical trust in 
having to, you know, consume our Lord through the Eucharist. Um, Interesting. Yes, we believe that every single mass is a miracle where this occurs and that the Lord is present. When we talk about a Eucharistic miracle, what we mean is that basically that veil between the appearance of the bread and wine and the reality of what is actually there is broken and is lifted for a moment so that what we know is there, which is the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus is actually manifesting as flesh and blood. So in each of these cases, one from the eighth century, all the way throughout 2013, um, the teams have found actual evidence of cardiac tissue that is alive beating has evidence of suffering. So we can go into the kind of microbiological processes, Mm -hmm. um, that, that, uh, evidence that, and is also connected to a larger mystical body and contains blood within it. So consistently across the board, uh, we are seeing that the, the doctrine of, of what the church teaches is, um, observable in these scientific means. That is absolutely amazing. And some of the miracles in this book are are hundreds of years old. Some are newer, but the tissue is still preserved. That's interesting. That was one of the most incredible things to me is that the one of the first documented Eucharistic miracles was in Lanciano, Italy in the eighth century. And for literally centuries, it has remained preserved. So um, if anyone, Dr. Serafini likes to say that if anyone was to try to fake this or make it into a hoax, that would be more of a miracle than just believing what we believe because (laughs) to preserve a human living heart tissue for that long is just impossible by scientific standards. So yes, there's, um, there's evidence that remains all the way from the eighth century and it matches down to a T the biological characteristics of the flesh that was found from 1992 through 2013 as well. Well, okay. So there are more modern miracles too from night between 1992 and 2013. Yeah. Can you tell a bit about the more modern miracles? Sure. So there have been actually hundreds of miracles of this kind recorded in the church's history. Um, they are usually spurred and we can get into the, the why behind this in a while by either doubt or great faith. Um, in Lanciano, for example, in the eighth century, the priest himself was doubting the doctrine of transubstantiation. Why? He was doubting the real presence. And so that's why Christ chose to manifest himself in that radical way um, in order to bolster belief among the faithful then. Um, in the modern era, we have a whole slew of examples. Um, there's a recently canonized, actually teenager, or not canonized quite yet, but beatified, um, bless, I believe, um, Carlo Acutis, who was alive um, back up through the 2000s, and he died at the age of 15, um, and he spent his life recording Eucharistic miracles on a website, um, and that's how many people encountered them for the first time, all these modern ones, because with the technology we have today, even someone who's a, a lay person who doesn't have the scientific background can take a look at the photographs, for example, um, from all throughout the world. So the Dr. Serafini um, heard of these miracles, both through that ministry and through his work as a practicing cardiologist. And he decided that he wanted to investigate five of them for himself. So he chose to look at some from the 1990s in Buenos Aires, Argentina, Um, 1992 through 96, and then a few additional ones in Poland. So uh, 2008 and then 2013 in Poland. 
Um, and then finally one from Mexico from 2006. So while this has been a phenomenon all throughout the church, um, in, in the modern era, obviously it becomes so much more pertinent because we now have the tools to actually dig deep and observe um, in great detail and with teams of scientists what exactly this is. Oh my gosh. And you said that these often are encountered because of great doubt or great faith. Mm -hmm. So two ends of the spectrum. Can you go into why that is? Sure. Yeah. So there's one really interesting example of a Eucharistic miracle from the Middle Ages that was prompted by a woman who had been raised Catholic and um, unfortunately desecration of the host is, was quite common um, among the populations that were anti-Catholic. So she had actually stolen a host from the church after it was consecrated and planned to use it for some nefarious purpose, maybe like black magic or something. And then she felt bad about it. She kind of, her conscience was getting at her when she was at home and she looked to where she had stowed the host away and it had started bleeding. So it was an act of she, she clearly believed in the real pre presence because she was planning to use it for, for these other uh, purposes, but it was this lack of faith on her part in, in our Lord and in, in the purpose of the real presence that prompted that to happen. Um, in modern day, we see maybe not so much a lack of belief, but a lack of reverence for the Eucharist. So the... Um, the classic practice among Catholics up until the 1960s was to receive kneeling on the tongue and only consecrated hands of the priest could touch the Eucharist. I forget which saint said this, but something like, if you knew what you were approaching, then you would approach the tabernacle on your knees. Because, you know, if you really think about what Catholics as we believe is, you know, this is God, the creator of the universe, the omnipotent, omniscient, all loving being contained there in this little host ready to, to give himself to you. So yes, only the utmost um, reverence will do. And in cases where that reverence is not present, that's another reason why we see um, <clears throat> the, the miracles occurring sort of a, uh, sort of a plea actually from our Lord saying, Hey, I'm here <laughs> like in, in case you doubted or in case you forgot. <laughs> um, and in some of these cases, the, the host was found on the carpet after mass. Um, in one case, it was in a candlestick that was in Buenos Aires and who knows how long it had been left there. Um, could have fallen during a mass. Someone could have taken it. And so that could have been there for years. And this just, um, it's kind of it's kind of a you know a result of the of the overall enculturation of of the lack of reverence sort of declining over the past fifty years or so and so that when you when we look at across the board how these miracles all uh, occurred each of them was preceded by a sort of um, sacrilege like that or a, a neglect of the host so right. Um, yeah. Well, it's almost as though, um, you know, God, Jesus is saying, you're, t you're not taking this seriously here. Let me show you how serious this is. Exactly. How, how reverent this is. Now, right. 
Does this miracle also occur with the wine turning into blood or is it just the hose turning into flesh? Yeah, that's a good question. So what, as Catholics, we believe that the blood is also contained within the host. So if you think about a body, it also contains the blood. So in each of these cases, it has been um, the host that has actually turned into flesh and blood. Um, so traditionally Catholics have received only under one form. Now you can receive, uh, the blood, the body and the blood separately from the host and the chalice. But, um, we do believe that the blood is contained within the body as well. Um, and obviously soul and divinity. So, um, yes, the, the host itself was observed as flesh, myocardial tissue, blood clots, and fresh blood spurting from an unknown source, um, underneath the clot. So it was all contained right from the host. <clears throat> oh my gosh. Well, and at that point you would not consume the host. Correct. Okay. Yep. So that's actually how these came about after, after the, the periods of sacrilege is that when the priest finds a host that has been neglected or fallen on the floor or something, the process uh, decreed by the church is to place it in water and then place it in the tabernacle so that it dissolves so that it can be disposed of into sacred ground um, poured through a, a sink that's called a sacrarium, which basically is a direct conduit to sacred ground. So kind of the next best thing after consumption, which is what it's in, it is intended for. Um, and so in each of these cases, in each of these five cases, they had done that process, placed the host in the water. And then the next day it had not dissolved. It it would typically dissolve within, you know, less than 24 hours, but it had not, and it had turned instead into this blood clot. And so that's when they, (laughs) that's when they were kind of like, something is going on here. We need to have this investigated. Wow. So in each of these cases, researchers observed living human and they did test for human, I'm assuming, and not yes. just okay, they did a test for human myocardial tissue that was distressed and after prolonged mm-hmm. suffering. So having gone through trauma. So what are the microbiological processes to substantiate this claim? Yeah, excellent question. So. Uh, the DNA that was found was able to identify this as human heart tissue. Um, there was not enough DNA to pull up a full profile, genetic profile. So we can talk more about that later. Um, but the heart itself, when, when you look at myocardial tissue under the microscope, it is very distinct just from the eye. So there are three types of muscle in the body. There's skeletal muscle, which is your typical muscles that cause movement Smooth muscle, which is, okay. um, yep, smooth muscle is for digestion and then heart tissue, heart muscle is its own particular type of muscle. It's characterized by sort of a net like quality. So the, um, each cell is bound to the neighboring cells, but not as tightly as in skeletal tissue. It has more of a loose, um, you know, flow to allow the interstitial fluid and, and the blood flow. So the, and they each have their own centrally located nuclei. So it's very distinctive, especially to a cardiologist. When, when you first looked at it under the microscope, it was clear, like this is heart tissue. Um, and when they delved deeper, there are some pretty shocking, uh, findings that, I mean, we can start with the one in Buenos Aires. It was observed to be alive. The first line of defense that really substantiates this is that there was a beating heart. So the team in Buenos Aires 
observed a quote, rhythmically beating piece of tissue, uh, which is inexplicable <laughs> to, the, to the common, um, you know, knowledge. Another thing is that in the Lanciano sample, which is the one that was left over from the eighth century and, and had been preserved miraculously, the sample found indicated a cross section of the entire heart. So not only did we see the myocardial fibers of the heart, heart muscle, but also cross sections of both arterial and venous blood vessels, the vagus nerve and the endothelial lining of the inside of the heart. So if we think of how uh, our Lord would be entirely present in like a, a synecdoche, as they say, in a small representation of the whole, then that makes absolute sense to have the entire heart there um, in this way. Right. Um, another interesting connection that Dr. Serafini makes is between the gospel accounts of the passion and what we know that our Lord went through physically and spiritually as well as emotionally and what's observable in these miracles. So there was one condition he kind of, uh, he plays doctor obviously in this book and he diagnoses uh, the heart tissue, the man who it is with a whole bunch of, of conditions. And they line up pretty perfectly with what we know happened during the passion. So number one, we have the agony in the garden. So we are told through the gospels that before Jesus was condemned to death, he spent the night after he was um, <clears throat> instituted the Eucharist at the last supper, praying in the garden um, of Gethsemane in preparation for the next day. And he was under an incredible amount of distress, um, both spiritually, just knowing that his sacrifice was going to happen, but some souls would still be lost. And also physically just out of preparation for the massive amount of pain he would be going through the next day. Um, we, it is recorded in the gospels that during that time, Christ actually sweated blood, which was indicative of obviously in, intense stress and associated with the heart that really aligns with a certain condition that Dr. Serafini found in the tissue. And it goes by its Japanese name. It's called Takosubo. Yeah. Takosubo. Yeah. Clinical. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, I had never really heard of this before, but it literally means in Japanese, a fishing pot to trap an octopus because that's how it looks. It's very um, constricted at the top and then larger at the bottom, which indicates that the heart is having a hard time actually pumping blood. Um, this condition mimics a heart attack. So it was really only isolated in the 1980s. And it was in people who were having extreme anxiety attacks. They thought they were dying. And when they looked at the actual heart, there was no obstruction of, of blood flow. So it wasn't a heart attack, but it was Ooh, this like, emotionally induced psychosomatic. Right. It's a clinical heartbreak. Yes. Right. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Um, so even that was, was visible in this heart tissue. Wow. Um, and then he moves on to next discuss what would have happened to Jesus's heart during the scourging, which is the next sorrowful mystery. It's the next kind of um, event in the passion and the road to Calvary. So we know that before he was crucified, of course, Jesus was scourged and whipped and beat um, by the centurions. And we see in the tissue discovered in these hosts, a uh, condition called necrosis, which means basically cell death. 
So that is when a cell has suffered intense blunt trauma and has just died. Um, and that would be very consistent with someone who had been beaten, particularly over the heart. Um, and also on the road to Calvary, we know that there are at least three falls recorded where Jesus fell. And since he was carrying the cross and was bound, he couldn't really break his fall with his hands. So that would have been more blunt trauma right to the chest. So that is evidenced um, in this as well. And then we finally get to the, the actual cause of death on the cross. Um, of course, there is evidence of both dehydration and asphyxiation, but Dr. Serafina has actually posited his own theory for the final cause of death of Jesus Christ, which <laughs> is just incredible because there, I have not seen this um, proposed by anyone ever before, but he concludes that it is likely that Jesus died of what's called cardiac tamponade. And that basically means that blood from a ruptured heart accumulates between the heart and the pericardial sac that holds the heart. And it constricts the heart so much that it can no longer pump blood. So that's what he believes was the final cause of death between everything that he had suffered throughout the day. That is, that is what happened at the end. Um, and another interesting alignment with the gospel accounts is that when this condition happens, the blood settles to the bottom of the pericardial sac, and then the fluid of the sac rises to the top in a process called sedimentation. And there was evidence of that found in this tissue as well under the microscope. And then we know from the gospels that of course the centurion pierces Christ's side in order to determine whether or not he's actually dead and out comes both blood and water or something that appeared as water. And so this condition would explain why that happened. Oh my, there's so much here. Um, I have so many questions, Christian, Kristen. Um, well, first of all, so they did test the DNA. Were yes. they able to determine anything in addition, about, particularly about Jesus? Yeah, that is, that's one of the most fascinating parts of this book because the yes, DNA tests, yeah, the DNA tests for each of these were inconclusive. And Dr. Serafini has a few theories about why that is. Um, first of all, it's some, of course, will be disappointed by, oh, because you really just want to know, like, what is the genetic profile of Jesus? But there's also... Um, Dr. Serafini kind of jokes that it's good that we don't know because of course there would be people out there who would try to clone him or something like that. So there's <laughs> my mind too. Could we clone? Yes. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. So, um, a couple of explanations he has is that number one, there was not sufficient evidence left. So red blood cells do not carry DNA. And since the majority of what was found was blood, um, then it would, it would not be present there. The white blood cells do have DNA and there were white blood cells. And of course the cardiac tissue would have DNA in the nuclei as well. Um, what he basically comes to the conclusion of though, is that, the DNA being inconclusive was on purpose. And the reason he thinks this is because most of human DNA is what's called junk DNA. So there are STRs, which are short tandem repeats, which are basically those 
Like you'll see them if you, if you ever do an ancestry test, it's like GATA over and over and over again. And you're like, what does that mean? It doesn't really mean anything. So most of our DNA does not code for actual biological characteristics. It is just unique to us, but just kind of there. Um, the body does not risk cutting it out and for fear of cutting out something important or, um, it's just not how it works, but the, um, the majority of it doesn't do anything. So this, uh, allows us to come to very unique profiles of individuals. So this is helpful for, uh, for example, forensic DNA testing or for ancestry testing, but doesn't actually have any bearing on, on how our bodies are formed. So what Dr. Serafini thinks is that the absolute absence of this almost 75% of the DNA in these hosts is indicative of glorified DNA. So of course, we know, as we were discussing before the program, um, after the resurrection, Christ's body was glorified. So this occurred, of course, he was born without sin um, because he is God. But after um, an event known as the transfiguration in his life, he went up to the, on a mountain with a few apostles and basically rose into the sky and was transfigured into his glorified self by God the Father. And then that again occurred after he rose from the dead after the crucifixion. So he, when he returned um, to earth after the crucifixion, he, his body was absolutely transformed. The wounds were still there um, so that we can see uh, the, the price of salvation, but he was no longer suffering, no longer in pain. Um, very, he was identifiable as himself, but basically glowing. And, um, and then this is, you know, he was, it was very clearly like a body that had defeated death. Um, so Dr. Serafini thinks that in a body such as that, there would be no need for extra DNA. Um, in a body that's glorified, it would not have any, anything that's superfluous. So, um, <clears throat> for example, when we talk about the doctrine of the Catholic church of the resurrection of the body, uh, we believe that this, what happened to Christ's body after his resurrection will happen to all of us after the end of time. So this is why you'll see on gravestones here will rise often. I've always, I, I love wandering through graveyards and I'd always wondered what that meant. And that means at the end of time, God willing, if, if we make it, um, we will be, our souls will be reunited with our bodies and we will have perfected bodies. Um, in these bodies, there will be no more disease. There won't be any imperfections whatsoever. So even if, you know, somebody has something very minor or, you know, some sort of blemish in their body, it will just be absolutely wiped away, but we'll still preserve our uniqueness and will be recognizable as ourselves. Um, but in those bodies, since, uh, no imperfections will be there, he posits again, that that DNA won't be there either. So that was a very interesting theory that I think aligns, um, maybe in some of the more advanced, uh, technologies that we might be getting in the next couple of years with DNA, we might be able to, you know, examine newer Eucharistic miracles and actually get that full picture. And maybe his, his theory will be challenged at that point, but until now, what he believes. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. 
Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Did you know that Radiate Wellness is more than just a podcast? That's right. We're also a comprehensive holistic wellness practice. Find out about our services, practitioners, and upcoming events at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. While you're there, visit our podcast page to read more about our great guests and even donate to the podcast. If you like our podcast, you can help in other ways as well, like subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening right now. Tell a friend, a family member, or a co-worker about the great content you find here. And if you wouldn't mind, please give us a thumbs up, a five-star rating, or a positive review. Sounds like a small thing, but it really helps. You might like to know about our Facebook communities while we're at it. We have a free community, the Radiate Wellness Community, on Facebook for news and great free content. Our subscribers group is Radiate U, as in the letter U, but also, well, you. There you'll find curated replays of past classes, guest interviews, and more. And now, back to our podcast and back to our guest. Yeah, oh, now that's very interesting. And yeah, in fact, of, um, you know, along the ancestry.com lines, yeah. We know all the the lineage, the we know where he was born and where died, but like what other nationalities, what other areas might be in there as well. Could be very interesting. Now, just to play devil's advocate, could this type of thing be faked? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. And Dr. Serafini concludes that it would be harder to fake this than to just suspend all disbelief and believe that it happened. And the reason he says that is because this tissue was observed to be alive. So if this was taken from a dead body, for example, you would have to somehow keep it alive without preservatives, um, with the, the, the blood pumping, um, <laughs> independent of a body for weeks, at least, uh, the, the case, I think that really is the best evidence against skeptics is in um, Buenos Aires, the first one in 1992, because that one was kept in water for three years before the investigations commenced. So (laughs) unless there's preservative, regular human tissue would be degraded by then, especially it's kept in water. Um, Another thing is there was no evidence of any salts or preservatives within the tissue. So that's something that would have to be present to allow this to happen. Um, but it's interesting because this has been the response from some, um, members of the community. So in, uh, yeah, I mean, right. Of course, if, you know, it's, it's something so difficult to believe that that's where people's minds go first. So actually in Poland, uh, following one of these miracles in Sokulka, uh, back in 2008, uh, an organization called the Polish Rationalist uh, Association actually brought charges against the local church because <laughs> they could not deny that this was heart tissue. They had the evidence in front of theirs. They had the pictures and they had the investigation. So they, you know, cause that would be my first thought would be like, oh, well, you know, maybe it's not heart tissue. Like if you're gonna, 
you know, if you're skeptical of this, that would be the first line of defense is to say it's probably something else. But they accepted that it was heart tissue. That was pretty unequivocal. And their next thought was that this must be from a murdered body. So <laughs> they brought charges of murder saying if it, it's obviously it can't be Jesus because that's too crazy. So we you know, want to find out who it is and where this was taken from. Um, the local attorney general actually just dismissed those charges without investigating them <laughs> because <laughs> there were no more murders reported in the area. No one had gone missing. And just in, in um, conversation with the with the medical team, they said that would have been basically impossible to to maintain um, based on what they observed anyway. So he decided to dismiss those charges. But it is certainly um, skeptics are certainly out there and certainly bringing these things to the fold. Uh, what I like about Dr. Serafini as well is that he is skeptical himself. So he has actually tossed out certain cases that he doesn't think there's sufficient evidence for. Uh, there's one example from here in the States, actually, Buffalo, New York in 2018. Um, <laughs> so I have family out there. I was like, oh man, like I could have been there for this. But he thought there wasn't enough evidence for that one. It was not investigated by a medical team. There, there was just, um, you can look it up online. There are photographs. It does align with what we see here, but there was just simply not enough evidence for him to make a conclusion. So he's very upfront about that um, and only accepts really the best of the best. Right, right. Um, well, in my mind, I'm thinking that, you know, these these are miracles, right? They are miracles. And uh, some you might rule out as some sort of hoax or something was tampered with, et cetera. But, you know, the, the cases that are in this book are very compelling. Mm -hmm. And my thinking is that this is such a precious piece of flesh why would I, I would be so hesitant to even take a piece of it to examine it yes right because then eventually you know we're going to examine it so much that and, and they're small right so yeah can you speak to that about why even give up a little bit of it for examination right that's a great point because as catholics we believe that the entirety of Jesus Christ is contained even in one fragment of the host. So that's why actually there's a part during the mass where the priest, it's called the fraction of the host. He breaks it in half and breaks it into smaller pieces in order to consume. And we believe that in each of those, uh, Christ is not divided. He is still in each small part. So uh, this is why too, you'll see um, there's a device that's called a patent, which is basically a gold plate that's put under your mouth as you receive, because even if a little crumb falls, then that is still the real presence. So yes, this was a huge ethical conundrum that, uh, the scientists had to grapple with, um, the priests and bishops of each diocese were involved. So the process after observing the miracle was to go to the bishop and then he would make the call, um, and so essentially, yes, like this, this does involve this testing. It's, it's very vigorous. It involves sometimes even sending the host through the mail, which <laughs> or through oh FedEx, which is like really like heartrending to think about. Um, but ultimately, yes, I mean, there, there is no perfect answer. The Bishop's decision in each case was that the faith that this would, um, increase among the laity and among among the people and the the purposes of evangelization were greater and outweighed the potential sacrilege so 
of course, that's, you know, when we think about one of the worst sacrileges that can occur is against, against the Eucharist. Um, but the, in this case, they, they made the decision that the, the benefits outweighed those risks. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Right. Okay. And then, um, in each of the cases in this particular book, they're all heart tissue. Mm-hmm. Are there other instances of these Eucharistic miracles where it's other types of tissue? Yeah, that's it's interesting because in each case it has always been heart tissue. Um, and of oh, course, yeah. yeah, so this the what I immediately thought of was the sacred heart. Um, because we we've had this as Catholics, we've had this devotion to the heart of Jesus, which is suffering and um you just have an image of it in your mind it has the crown of thorns around it it is dripping blood and um there are promises associated with the sacred heart but it says at the top of of most images of the sacred heart behold this this heart which has so loved men that it has spared nothing even to consuming itself to witness to its love um and i think it does make perfect sense that what we consume is the sacred heart because that has been historically um the greatest representation of christ's love for us and um one of the one of the most uh popular devotions and um yeah they they found that um and obviously in each heart uh in each piece of heart tissue there was also blood so that is another um, coincidence with, with the sacred heart is that it is dripping the precious blood contained from the heart. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's, it's actually quite beautiful and moving that it is, is the heart that's uh, just kind of a testament to love. It's kind of symbolic in a way. And Greg Braden finds that, um, the heart is just as intelligent as the brain, if not more so. Okay. And we store many memories also in the heart as well. So it is very symbolic. So that may, I mean, that makes sense. I was just wondering because this is so fascinating to me. Right. Um, right. Of course we've had like throughout history, the, the representation of the heart, um, you know, obviously we all, we all think, Oh, that's just a metaphor, but no, it is true. Like (laughs) physically and spiritually true. Like the heart is the site of, of a lot of, of the soul. And, um, even in ancient Jewish tradition, the the blood was said to contain the soul. So it checks out. Interesting. Now, um, we've talked about the DNA of it. We've talked about, um, you know, examining all the DNA that's present. Have there been, actual, I don't even know what the, the scientific name for this, like a specialist who specializes in DNA, aside from a cardiologist, has someone, have there been other specialists who examine these miracles? Yeah. So there have been specialists consulted by Dr. Serafini on DNA. The majority of DNA work on, um, what is purported to be our Lord has been on the shroud of Turin, actually. So this, you may have heard of this before. It's the burial cloth of Jesus. So it bears the print of his body from when he rose from the dead. And it's, it's inexplicable by, by photographic science. Um, and basically gives us an entire profile of his, of his crucified body. And that's where we get the Holy face devotion and um, just like an image of, of what he actually looked like. Um, the DNA work that's been done on that has been pretty in depth. Um, 
They were able to identify him as a Palestinian male from about the right time. Um, so that makes sense. And the um, from what Dr. Serafini observed in the um, in the myocardial tissue, it is consistent with that, although not as complete. So, yeah, I think that's an, another frontier that um, if we're ever, ever, you know, in the situation where we have a bigger sample of DNA, then I, I would like to see a sequel to this. That's a, you know, a, <laughs> a geneticist examines Jesus, right? <laughs> After a cardiologist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's definitely something, uh, a new area that I think a lot of research remains to be done. Oh, there, yes, exactly. This does open the door to a sequel. Um, mm -hmm. For sure. <laughs> um, you know, something else that occurs to me is the incorruptibility, mm -hmm. right, of the samples. Mm -hmm. um, has there been comparisons of these Eucharistic miracles with incorruptibles? Yeah, that is a great comparison. Correctly? Yes, you are. Yep. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so incorruptibles um, are... Uh, there's there are a, there's a huge tradition of incorruptibility in the church, and it stems, of course, from the the principle of the glorified body and how when someone reaches that level of holiness, their body ceases to be defiled by sin anymore. Um, Adam and Eve, before they fell, before they sinned, would not have died. So death is the wages of sin, um, and that is why we suffer in this life. And have to ultimately die. Um, so Jesus defeated death. And so those who are very close to him, even in this life, um, do not have, have the marks of, of death. So we've seen this all throughout the church. Um, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich actually survived on the Eucharist alone for decades almost. Um, so just an incorruptibility in the sense that her body did not need the usual day to day, um, you know, eating and processes to survive. Yeah. <laughs> um, we also have examples of saints who have died. And this is actually part of the canonization process is to exhume the body, to examine it for signs of incorruptibility. So uh, one of the most famous examples is St. Bernadette Subaru, um, who is uh, the saint who Our Lady of Lourdes appeared to in France. And she lived in the 19th century. So we have photographs of her when she was alive. Um, <clears throat> And her body is almost perfectly preserved. And it still to this day exudes uh, an aroma of roses when you visit it. So I haven't visited yet, hopefully one day, but she, um, some, some saints have certain degrees of incorruptibility. So for St. John Vianney, for example, his heart is incorruptible and it's a relic that can be um, observed. So I think there's a priest who travels with it um, on pilgrimages. Um, <laughs> and then of course there are, relics of all sizes. So the other day I actually visited, um, uh, basically a pilgrimage of a priest who travels with over 150 relics, first class of the saints. So those are actual pieces of their bodies that have been preserved for, um, you know, veneration by the faithful. So mostly bone, things like that. Um, sometimes in the case of Joan of Arc, it was some ashes from the site of where she was burned because that's what remained of her body. But, uh, yes, this is the the fact that these Eucharistic miracles have survived in their physical state is very much tied to the concept of incorruptibility. Um, one of I know I mentioned briefly before that in one of the miracles there was actually blood that was being pumped consistently. Oh, interesting, mm -hmm. and that's really 
I think, to do with the incorruptibility because this is not just, this is kind of like Padre Pio, for example, um, who lived in the 20th century. So he's another example of someone who was incorruptible. Even during his life, he had the stigmata, which are the wounds of Christ, um, and they would consistently bleed fresh blood. So it wasn't just a one-time wound um, because many people accused him of, of faking it for you know, attention or, or what have you. But um, scientists have examined him. Uh, I saw one of the cloths that had um, bound his stigmata at, at this relic of, um, event, and it was um, the blood was still observable. And um, it, it's always accompanied again. He that those wounds had the the odor of flowers as well. So it's always accompanied by sort of a superseding the body. It's um, not the degenerative process of aging and death, but rather of renewal and restoration. Right. Yeah. And that's what really struck. I mean, the whole thing is these, these are miracles. Um, but really what struck me is that, you know, this tissue was still fresh. It could be examined. It hadn't been, especially the one from what was it, 800 AD. Mm -hmm. um, these were still examinable. Yeah. And one thing that I think is really interesting in terms of proving that the tissue is still alive is examining the blood because blood, what it does is it moves through the body, right? Like that, that's its purpose. It is, it is what keeps us alive. Um, the, a couple of interesting observations were made in the blood. So there were a huge presence of white blood cells. So um, Dr. Serafini actually diagnosed Jesus with lymphocytosis, which means that leukocytes um, and lymphocytes, which are both white blood cells, rushed to a site of trauma, and they were in such a huge presence of inflation that it was indicative of uh, a suffering piece of tissue. Um, the interesting thing about white blood cells is that they are not produced in the heart they're produced in the bone marrow and then they travel through the vascular system and then through the lymph nodes to get to sites in the body. They're like the EMTs of the body that rush to the, to the sites where they're needed. And so what that means is that this heart tissue was not producing its own lymphocytes. So it was somehow connected mystically to a greater body <laughs> that would allow the lymphocytes to rush to that site and to be constantly influxing, even as it was being examined. Is amazing. So all of these are they they are just beyond belief. But there are so many miracles in the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. What do you think the role of miracles is uh, yeah. for the faith? Right. So it says in the Gospels that blessed are they who have not seen but yet still believe. So we are called to believe um, basically because he told us to. But <laughs> sometimes Christ gives us these physical manifestations of miracles in order to increase faith. Um, we see this even throughout the Gospels, throughout his life on earth. Jesus was performing miracles constantly. So the first public recorded miracle is at the wedding at Cana, right? Where he, he turns the, the water into wine um, and then performs many healings and um, exorcisms um, of those who are possessed. Um, and then of course the greatest miracle culminating at, at the resurrection itself. So we, we believe, um, I know there's the story of doubting Thomas. He, 
he of course wanted to see the evidence. Um, he wanted to see the wounds in Jesus's hands and Jesus did show them to him, but, but said it was better for him to believe if he had not seen that. So it is like, right. Everybody hopes that they live to see a miracle um, and that they, they will be one of the ones chosen to, to see this extreme um, expression of Christ's supernatural presence here on earth. Um, but yes, ultimately, I think that when we hear about these today, um, because they're so much more accessible now with, you know, if this had happened in, in Poland in the ninth century, we might've not heard about it here. So, or wherever we, we would have been. So I think that it's a, a clarion call to a return to, to reverence, to just developing your relationship to Jesus. Um, and ultimately a call of love, um, one of the most, going back to the blood for a second, uh, one of the most profound observations that Dr. Serafini had was identifying the blood group of Jesus, which is type AB blood. Um, this is the universal receiver. And so when you would think of Jesus, you would your mind would go to universal donor, right? You would think, oh, he shed his blood for all, so it should be the universal donor that everyone can receive. But in fact, Dr. Serafini says that the universal receiver actually makes more sense because in Christ's blood, all of humanity's blood can be dissolved and can flow into his blood and into his heart. And that is what the mystical body of the church is. It's an expansion of Jesus's body here on earth where we are all members. We are all essentially like little red blood cells in, <laughs> um, in his heart of the church. And so... Um, there's a there's a tradition of um, a scholar, Catholic scholar, John Dunn Scotus, that Christ recapitulated in himself all of creation. And the AB blood group is actually the one that contains all the other blood groups within it. It has additional um, <clears throat> characteristics, but every single blood type can be can be dissolved in that. And it's also the most rare blood type. Um, only about one to 5% of the population is AB. And then um, in one of these miracles, they actually further identified it as ABRH negative. So that's another identifier that narrows it down even more. That is only 0.75% of the population. So ultimately, like all these details, I think just point to this tradition of love and of, of the salvation. Um, I, my favorite quote about the Eucharist is uh, St. Jose Maria Escriva. He says, when you approach the tabernacle, remember that he has been waiting for you for 20 centuries. So I think when we think of the why, why us, why in our time, that's the answer right there. Oh my goodness. That is remarkable. I have so many more questions. This has just uh, opened up so many, um, I don't know, so, so many thoughts in my mind. Um, one such is that um, have these tissues, these samples, these, these blood samples been compared across? I mean, have they been compared to each other? They have. Yep. So in each of these cases, uh, blood was only discernible in three of the modern cases. So the two in Poland, there was not enough blood to make an analysis, but in the three that existed, they were all type AB, um, and all had the same characteristics and, uh, going back to the heart, each, um, piece of the heart was also exuding the same sort of 
um, processes. So the necrosis was, was observable in all the fact that it was heart tissue, obviously it was observable in all. Um, <clears throat> and then another interesting comparison is between the blood type found in these miracles and that on the shroud of Turin, which I mentioned before, it's mm. the same blood type. So just like the DNA is consistent, the blood type is also consistent with that. Um, that is the, the shroud has been around obviously since the resurrection, but it was heavily um, examined in the middle ages. So there's some contaminants left on it, uh, which has caused some sort of uh, false flags with, with DNA testing in the past. Wow. But one thing that is kind of like another argument against skepticism is the fact that AB blood is the most rare. And if somebody was going to fake this in the middle ages, they wouldn't have known what a blood type was. So <laughs> they would have had to take a lucky guess if they were going <laughs> to douse it with blood. Um, and unless they guessed correctly and got ABRH negative, which is 0.75% of the globe, then it, it's pretty unlikely. So <laughs> absolutely. I just think all of this, Kristen, is just evidence that there are miracles around us all the time. Mm -hmm. right? Every day, it's a miracle. The sun comes up. My gosh, the sun goes down. It's amazing. We open our eyes. We're breathing. It's a miracle that our bodies work the way they do. Um, everything is just astounding and such a miracle. And that's why I really appreciate your time with this and the book. So where can we find this book? A cardiologist examines Jesus. Yes. So it's available at sophiainstitute.com so that we are the publisher of this volume and it's also available on Amazon. So I think they're restocking now um, after inventory uh, at the end of the year. But if you go, go ahead and order it, um, we'll get it to you. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll have those links in the show notes and uh, I'm going to be interviewing one of your colleagues for my other podcast, Michael Likens on, is, do you pronounce it Likens? I believe it's Lichens, actually. Lichens. Michael Lichens, thank you for that. Uh, is going to be on my Real Life Angel Encounters podcast to talk about angels. And I'm very excited about that as well. Yeah, Kristen, any, any other thoughts to leave us with? Anything we haven't covered or looked at? No, I think we covered it. I, I would just echo your final sentiments that, yes, this is a reminder that basically every day is a miracle um, and that so many things that we take for granted, especially just the intricacies of our body and how we stay alive without even trying um, um, and, and getting into angels more, the, the protection that God gives us to, to make it through this life and join him in the next um, just induces, I think, profound gratitude. And this is a wonderful reminder of that. It is, truly. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Christy. It was wonderful to meet you. Radiate Wellness is an international community of holistic and alternative healers dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com.
Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.